The scripture reading this morning will be from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. It's Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and have put on the breastplate of righteousness, and and has the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints, and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with the faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. You may be seated. Well, I'm very happy to be with you today, and I'm very grateful for the presence of everyone. And for those of you who are watching and listening over the internet, we're very happy to have you as well. And we thank you for your participation in our worship. We've had some beautiful singing. And we're very grateful for that. Thank you for the prayers and the scripture reading. It's all important parts of our worship service. And I'm very happy that we can be together and enjoy praising God and worshiping him together. We come today to our final discussion in an expository way with regard to the book of Ephesians. And we've been looking at it uh, in this special way. I've tried to let each point of the passage be the points that I would present for you and explain to you. Rather than me coming up with the points, I've allowed the text itself be the point maker. And the point makers that are given to us today are very important ones because it lets us know something that we knew, but I don't know that we really appreciated as much as we should. And that is the fact that we are in a serious, serious spiritual battle and our foe is the worst of all possible foes. Paul, looking at a military man, being chained to him, Ephesians 6 and 20, begins to use this military figure as a means of helping us understand our role in the salvation of our souls and the importance of winning this spiritual battle. Very reasonable for Paul to talk this way. As he looks at a Roman centurion, he begins to compare the implements of his war with the implements of ours. And if we can apply these matters to ourselves properly, then we will be victorious over the greatest foe of all. 
Paul's used military illustrations before. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and 4, he told us that the weapons of our warfare are not flesh and blood or carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. He told us in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12 to fight the good fight of faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3, he says, share in the sufferings of a good soldier. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, I've fought a good fight, he said. So this is not new for him to use military type of figure when he discusses our place in the gospel of Christ and our need to be faithful to God. And he tells us that there are basically three important avenues we need to watch out for. One is the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 17, whereby the culture is trying to force upon us its way of life and its outlook and view. And then we need to be very careful with regard to the flesh, the physical desires of the body, because it's doing its very best to oppose God. And then behind it all is the devil, the adversary who wants us to lose our soul. So he's made four important points in our study today. You'll find them on the front page of your bulletin. The first one will be the enemy that we face. And I think that's a very important facet of our study from Ephesians chapter 6. We need to know who we're up against. And then the equipment we need. He's given us a classic text in verses 13 through 17 of just what spiritual elements we need. We're in a special battle. We're going to have to have special implements in order to win it. And then he tells us something about prayer and how important prayer is that we're to pray for each other and that Paul requested their prayers as well. And then he ends a great book with a note of encouragement that I wanted to be sure that we understood, verses 21 through 24. So we have a lot to do this morning. We have a lot ahead of us, but yet it could not be a more valuable and more profitable time spent than for us to look at these four points that Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning for us in verse 10. The first thing he talks about is who the enemy is. That's the way it is with battles. Officers need to know by means of intelligence and reconnaissance who they're up against. They have to make decisions with regard to the battle, so they need to know who the enemy is. What is the enemy? Where is he? What is the enemy capable of doing? They need to know all of these particular things. And in this very important passage of Scripture, Paul does that for us. He tells us really who the enemy is so that by instruction, there's no need for us to be caught off guard. He tells us several things. He tells us who the leader of the opposition is. He goes by several different names. One name that you're going to find is the devil. It means accuser. And he continues to accuse the children of God day and night, Revelation 12 and 10. Sometimes he's referred to by name as Satan. He's the adversary, and that's what the word means. He's the enemy of God. He's called the tempter in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 3, where Jesus was tempted of the devil, but at the same time victorious, Jesus was over him. Then there are times when he's described. Jesus describes him as a murderer, John chapter 8 and verse 44. He describes him as a liar and the father of lies. Sometimes he's compared to things. He's compared to a lion, 
1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, roaring, seeking whom he may devour. He's compared to a serpent, Genesis chapter 3, Revelation chapter 12. Sometimes he takes on the form of an angel of light to deceive those who are in darkness, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. He's described as the God of this age, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. The Bible's doing everything that it can to help us understand who we are up against and what he's able to do and what we can do in order to be victorious over him. But the Bible doesn't stop there with just a description of him. It also describes something of his associates, the demonic world that is doing its best to overcome us and cause us to lose our souls. I see that in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have serious opponents with regard to this battle. The battle is over our soul, and we're right in the middle of it, and we need to know who the enemy is. And Paul says Satan has helpers. He has associates in this regard. I wish I knew more about that. When you and I were studying the book of Daniel, we came to Daniel chapter 10, and there's an interesting passage there about the angels of Satan trying to do battle with the angels of God over a certain nation. A spiritual battle is taking place. I wish I knew more about that, but the battle is taking place, and Paul pulls the curtain back just enough to let me see something of what is going on, though I don't know as much about that as I wish I did. You'll remember in Ephesus when Paul was there, Acts chapter 19. What happened? Paul goes throughout the ancient city preaching that there's only one God and that Diana is not God. And that sometimes referred to in your translations, Artemis, this ancient pagan deity is not a real God. And so Demetrius saying, you know, sales are really falling off. You know, this guy's going around telling everybody that Diana's not really God. And so people are not buying our images of the god Diana. If we don't do something, we're going to have to go out of business and we're going to lose revenue. And our financial stream is drying up. So he gets all the silversmiths together and he begins to cause a riot in the city of Ephesus. And for two solid hours in the theater at Ephesus, the Ephesians are shouting, Great is Diana of the gods. Can you imagine? Who do you think's behind all that? Satan's behind all that. All of the riot, all of the difficulty that is being faced there, Satan is behind these particular matters, bringing it about. It's a spiritual battle. When one of the Syrian kings was going up against Israel and their king, he told his warriors and his soldiers, 1 Kings 22 and 31, he said, now fight neither with small nor great, save only with the king. Go after the king of the opposition. That's what you go after. In order to win the battle, Satan is the king of our opposition. We need to know who he is. We need to know how he works. We need to be able to overcome him. And overcome him we can with God's help which he has provided. Sometimes he's described as a lion. There's a reason Satan's described as a lion. John in Revelation described him as a dragon. There's reason for describing him as a dragon because of his power. You doubt the power of Satan, just talk to Job for a while 
And in the book of Job, you're going to see how Job said, look what Satan did to my body. Look what Satan did to my home. Look what Satan did to my wealth. Look what Satan did to my friends. If you doubt for a moment the opposition, then you're going to lose the battle and you can't win it. Sometimes we see how wise he really is. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. He used the word wrestle there. That word wrestle. I'm in Ephesians chapter 6 in the verse, verse 12. He means hand-to-hand combat. It's getting personal. I had a very dear friend, retired from the military, Colonel Langford. I just had the highest respect for him. Highly decorated soldier, retired. And he was in the artillery. And so when you sat at lunch with Colonel Lankford, you heard everything about guns and cannons and what they could do and all kinds of bombs and that kind of, And I was interested in that. I had no experience in that particular thing at all. And he was telling about an occasion where in the Vietnam War, where the enemy had actually gotten close beyond the line of the artillery, and I can't remember the details of it. And he said, and he was wounded, wounded in battle. And he said, now... It got personal. He said, now, when I was shooting off those cannons and howitzers and things like that, he said, it wasn't that personal. But now that I was wounded in battle, now it was personal. We wrestle hand-to-hand combat against the enemy and his associates. Now, he's making a point here how subtle he is. Do you notice that in verse 11? Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You might have in your translation the word wiles. It means cunning, crafty. He's very deceptive. He's very much like one disguising himself as an angel of light so that he can deceive those he's up against. I pity, pity, pity the people who swallowed the false notion that Satan is just some kind of abstract force that Satan is not real, that Satan is not the real opposition that we face. And I feel sorry for those who have bought into that false doctrine. Satan would love for you to believe that he doesn't really exist. He'd love for you to believe that he's just some kind of abstract idea or concept between right and wrong. Let me tell you something. Paul's making it clear. You face a horrible foe. He is Satan. He is the devil. He's like a roaring lion. And he will destroy you and destroy your family. That's Paul's first point in the last section of Ephesians chapter 6. Now since I'm involved in a special battle, I need special equipment. And the second point that he makes in this particular matter is telling me that God has given me this equipment so that I can safeguard myself against the foe in the battle. He's using military terminology and a military motif. And he's carrying on with the idea that you better not neglect your use of this equipment. It's a special battle. I need special equipment. And so God has given me this special equipment. And when I use it properly, it doesn't matter who the enemy might be. For if God is for me, who can be against me? Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. And the first thing he tells me about is the belt of truth in verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now the belt of truth 
is referring to a rather large leather belt. It's not like a thin dress belt that men wear today, but it's a large leather belt, and it's there to hold the sword and hold the other implements. It really is uh, foundational so that the warrior, the soldier, the centurion, the Roman legionnaire is able to bind his uh, tunic around himself with the belt and in turn prepare himself for battle. And of course, if we do not have truth as our belt, then we're not going to be able to focus on what we need to focus on, and we're not going to be victorious in the battle that we have to face. If, after all, if you don't know the truth, how is it going to benefit you? If you don't live by the truth and practice the truth, what good is the truth going to be for you? Paul is saying the first step in overcoming the foe, a horrible foe, is understanding that you have the belt of truth. And this belt of truth is helping us understand what we need to do and what we do not need to do so that we can overcome him. And then he talks about, in verse 14, the breastplate of righteousness. And we could talk a lot about that particular implement in ancient times. Basically, it was made of metal, and it would cover the front or it would cover the back of the soldier and the back of the soldier, I should say. And it was really there to protect the vital organs of the individual who's doing the fighting. If you're exposed, there's no way that you're going to win the battle. And this breastplate is described as a breastplate of righteousness. I like the word justification. And many times the word justification is used in the passage and passages like this. God has made me right because of my faith and because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and for what Christ has done. And I need to live the justified life the righteous life. So I look upon this breastplate of righteousness as a tool which is saying, live for Christ every day and live the justified life and the righteous life that the Bible teaches us to live. Then and only then can we really be successful in overcoming the adversary. And he talks about the shoes of the gospel of peace, and that's in verse 15. Now, a Roman soldier had special shoes on, and they had nails in the soles, and he was using them to have better footing. When he'd go into the battle, he'd be able to overcome the enemy. In fact, it's an interesting little side, side story about this. This is how the emperor Caligula got his name. He meant little boots, and he would run around the soldiers, and they would tease him and play with him even when he was it's a little child. And so they called him little boots, and that's the Latin term for boot, Caligulae. So Caligula became known as one of the worst emperors Rome ever had. But at any rate, it all goes back to illustrate the importance of the soldier's shoes. Now, if we are not faithful to the gospel of Christ, we're going to be tripped up, and we're not going to be able to win the battle. If we've never obeyed the gospel of Christ, verse 15, we have nothing to stand upon. If we don't live the gospel of Christ, we don't have the footing that we need. So we're going to be tripped up. And we're going to be tripped up. That means we're going to lose the battle, which is the most important battle that we can be fighting, and that's the battle for our souls. As Satan hates us and wants to destroy our souls in a devil's hell. Then he talks about the shield, and the shield has always been interesting to me. It comes up in about verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which with which you will quench, extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. 
An ancient Roman shield was about 14 feet by 2 feet, and it was designed to cover the physical body and torso of the, of the soldier. The interesting thing about these shields is they had an interlocking type of device whereby all the Roman soldiers could interlock their shields together and move forward, and it was like a, a mo- mobile wall moving in unison as they would go before the enemy, and the enemy would be unable to stop them because of the shield which was protecting them. But now here, he says, our faith is like that. Our faith, our trust, our confidence, our dedication to God, his word, and his promises serve as a kind of shield which helps us against the fiery darts. Fiery darts conveys the idea that they would take arrows and dip them in some kind of liquid tar that kind of thing that was very flammable, and they would pull the bow back and shoot, and it would be a flying dart that would come through the air. And if it hit you, then not only would you be impaled by the arrow, but you would be on fire with regard to the fiery dart. And he said, now Satan is like that. Satan uses fiery darts against us, but your protection is the shield of faith. And when I think about faith, I think about confidence and commitment to God and dedication to God, that I'm taking God at his word. And when God says something, I know it's right. And when God says do something, I know I need to do it. And when God says don't do something, I know I need to keep back or abstain from doing that particular thing. Because I know one thing, Satan is going to try to shoot a poisonous flaming dart into my heart. And he does that, trying to destroy me with lies blasphemous kind of language, hateful thoughts about others, doubt that I can create in my own heart, and burning desires of the flesh, which will set me on fire and destroy me. But faith quenches the fiery darts which come my way. And if you hadn't been hit by a fiery dart of Satan, you will be. And it's going to take great faith to overcome the fiery darts because as the fiery dart comes into your heart, sent by Satan to impale your soul, it will destroy you if you do not have the shield of faith and commitment and dedication. You'll be lost and the battle will be his. And I know that I've always got to have that shield up Because Satan never stops throwing those darts. He keeps throwing them and throwing them and that shield of faith will continue to repel each one so long as I grow in faith and become mature in faith. But verse 17, he said, I got a special piece of equipment here for you. God's given us the helmet of salvation. The helmet, verse 17, protects the head. For the Christian, the helmet of salvation protects his heart, protects his mind. You see, Eve needed the helmet of salvation when she faced the devil in Genesis chapter 3. She was unfaithful there in that regard, and the devil took advantage of her. You and I need the helmet of salvation because we want God to control our minds. We don't want Satan to control our minds. We want God to control our intellect. It's so important. So many times people miss that point. You need all the intellect that God has given you. 
and you need it focused and trained on God and God's Word so as to overcome the wicked temptations that come our way. It's going to take faith, and it's going to take growth in that faith. 2 Peter chapter 3 and 18 is a beautiful passage. serves as a basic text for 2 Peter. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's why new converts need to come to understand how important it is to grow in faith. What the teaching of the truth is all about. How that they should react. How that they should understand. These important elements of Christian living and Christian doctrine. For if we do not pass them on to the next generation, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, then in turn they will be lost and fall victim to the devil's prey. We need the helmet of salvation to protect our minds, to focus them on God and God's word. Now by verse 17, he gives us the only offensive weapon given, the sword of the Spirit. He looked at that Roman soldier chained to him, and he saw that Roman soldier had a small sword, a short sword. He also had a long sword. Acts chapter 2 and 37, when Peter preached the gospel to those men that day on the day of Pentecost, they were pricked in their heart. And that's the word for the short sword. When a Roman soldier got real close in hand-to-hand combat, he'd take out that short sword He'd run you right through with that short sword. And that's what Peter did to those on the day of Pentecost. He ran them through the heart with the fact that Jesus was the resurrected Christ, the Son of God. And I said, men and brethren, he's run us through with that sword, that truth. What shall we do? We have a spiritual sword. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 talks about the Word of God sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God is sharp and powerful. It can do so much more than any physical sword can do. You know what Luke did? Luke grabbed a physical sword at the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke chapter 22. He pulled out that sword and he swung it and he hit the high priest's ear and knocked it right off. Cut it right off his head. Jesus said, stop, now there's not going to be any of that. Took that man's ear and healed it right back. Peter should have known that the spiritual sword was far greater than the physical sword. These men came with swords and staves and Jesus said, I was every day in the temple and now you come out here and try to take me as if I were a thief and as a robber. See, Peter and us, we need to understand there are differences between a physical sword and the spiritual sword, which is the Word of God. A material sword pierces the body, but a spiritual sword will pierce the heart as it did in Acts 2 and 37. The more you use a physical sword, the duller it gets. But the more you use the spiritual sword, the sharper it gets, until it becomes a keen, sharp rapier, which really is able to destroy and cut away truth, prejudice, and preconceived ideas, which we should not have. When you take a physical sword, it takes a lot of strength to hold that thing. It takes a lot of strength to wield that thing. But in Hebrews 4 and verse 12, the spiritual sword is its own strength. It is the power. It is the one which is able to kill and to cut and to destroy that which is wicked. But then notice this. A physical sword is used to kill, but a spiritual sword is used to give life. There's a big difference between a physical sword and a spiritual sword. 
Jesus used the spiritual sword on the wilderness and temptation, Matthew chapter 4. Maybe it's the best example we have of someone and how to use the spiritual sword. Not take it out like Peter did, a physical sword, but a spiritual sword. And with each temptation, Jesus answers that temptation with a Bible passage which gives him strength to repel the enemy and is successful in resisting the temptation. Now, that's what I need to do. I need to take the spiritual sword and use it successfully so that I can repel the enemy and win the victory. You know, a guy told me one time, you can prove anything by the Bible. You ever hear that one? Well, I've heard that. I guess you can prove anything by the Bible if you take the passage out of context, if you take the passage and twist it around and try to make it say something it was never intended to say, if you take the passage and interject your own likes and dislikes, your own ideas and your own beliefs, you can make the Bible say anything you want to. After all, Satan came along and said, quoted the Bible, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. Go ahead and cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. The passage says God won't allow you to be hurt, or God won't allow you to be harmed. And Jesus said, you misused that. You misused the quotation. Because there's another Bible passage that says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. You tried to make that Bible passage say something it was never intended to say. People will come along and they'll misuse the Bible. They'll twist it and they'll turn it. They'll try to make it say something it was never intended to say. That underscores my need to understand the Bible so that I can see when that happens. That underscores my need to know what God has said so that I will be able to know the difference between what is right and what is wrong, and I can reject the attempted twisting and turning of false teachers and those which want to say something the Bible never meant to say. Oh, you can prove anything about the Bible if you want to twist it and turn it around and pervert it. But when you take it at face value and keep it in its context and understand the words and the intent of the passage... The passage is very clear. You see, I need this sword of the Spirit. I need this armor. I need it every day. I dare not go without it because Satan continually attacks my soul and wants me to destroy it. There's a third point that he makes here, and we dare not miss it. Sometimes I thought, maybe this is part of the armor, but I don't think it is. By verse 18, he starts talking about prayer. Did you notice what he said about prayer? He went through this list of armor and how important it is and how special it is. But now in verses 18 through 20, he's talking about prayer. And the first thing he's saying is pray always, praying at all times. Uh, he said that in other places. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17, pray without ceasing, always be in communion with God because all of us constantly need the help which God prov can provide because the devil's constantly after us, trying to destroy us. And then I'm going to put it this way. Pray with all prayer. And what I mean by that is to capture what he's saying in verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer. Pray with all prayer. And what do you think he means by that? Notice he says, and supplication. He didn't say, 
pray that I have comfort and relaxation and can live in comfort and leisure. Or don't be praying for yourself with regard to material necessities of life and the material things of life. But he talks about supplication. He talks about intercession. He's talking about thanksgiving. There are a lot of different prayers that can be prayed. It's not only this particular prayer, but pray all kinds of prayers. Pray that God helps those who are in need. Pray that God helps the sick and that he restores them if it is his will. Pray in thanksgiving and praise to God. Thanking God for all that he's done. Asking God's blessings to continue to be upon us. Thanking God for his grace. Thanking God for his mercy. Pray all sorts of different prayers. Praying at all time in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. A lot of different prayers that can be offered and should be offered. And if I'm just praying for myself all the time and my own benefits, then I'm certainly offering a selfish prayer. He says pray in the Spirit, verse 18. A lot that needs to be said about that. Certainly to know what the Spirit has revealed about prayer would be involved in praying in the Spirit. When you go back and look through the book of Ephesians, which I've tried to do, I see a lot there involved in the work of the Spirit. He's certainly not talking about miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. He's certainly not talking about any kind of illumination of the Holy Spirit today, but he is talking about the importance of the Holy Spirit. And I think pray in the Spirit means pray by and with and for what the Spirit has revealed in the Scriptures for us. And then I think a point about prayer needs to be made here. You better pray with your eyes open. To that end, keep alert. Pray with your eyes open. And when my grandchildren were with us and we enjoyed having our wonderful grandchildren, we'd all assemble around the table. Breakfast was always an important meal for us. We got everybody up and going for breakfast. And I told everybody, bow your heads and close your eyes. I had to tell them that because they wouldn't do that unless I told them. And so they were very obedient. They'd bow their heads and close their eyes so that I would say the prayer. And then I think it was Bella who said, Braden started eating before the prayer, Papa. I said, all right, Braden, put the food down. We're going to wait till we have the prayer. Bow your heads and close your eyes. But this particular passage is saying, you pray and stay alert at the same time. Watch and pray is a common expression found in the pages of the Bible. Nehemiah was helping build the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And the enemy was trying to stop the work. But the enemy was defeated because of them watching and praying. In Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 9, the text tells us, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Watch and pray is his important admonition. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. I think the point about perseverance is the idea you need to keep praying. And don't simply stop praying, but keep praying and stick with it and pray over and over again. The church prayed together in the first century. While the whole church came together to pray for Peter when he's in prison, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. 
And he also says, pray for all the saints. Pray for all the saints. I'm in verse 18. I'm working on this point about prayer. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You know, when Jesus gave them the model prayer, he didn't just say, my Father which is in heaven. He said, our Father which is in heaven. We pray for each other. Paul said, verse 19, pray for me. Pray for me. Paul needed, our, needed their prayers, and he solicited their prayers. If Paul needed their prayers, don't I need your prayers? Don't we need each other's prayers? And he doesn't say here, pray that I have comfort and pray that I have safety. After all, Paul is in prison in Rome at the time he's writing this, but he tells them, pray that I may have boldness to preach and teach the word of God and not be ashamed of the gospel. And also, verse 19, pray for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. There's a fourth point that he makes in this paragraph, and it's a point of encouragement. He says, I'm going to send Tychicus to you to tell you what's going on, let you know what's happening. They had no idea what was taking place with regard to Paul. Perhaps they knew he was in prison, perhaps not. He said, I'm going to send Tychicus, and Tychicus is going to explain all these particular matters. And Paul is sending Tychicus to them to encourage them, to build them up. Now, Tychicus was that kind of guy because Tychicus had come to Paul in Acts chapter 20 and verse 4 and had encouraged the Apostle Paul. Now Paul is sending Tychicus to them so that he may be of encouragement and help them. He says in the passage, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Verse 21, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Encouragement. That's why the church flocks together to encourage each other. Encouragement. It is an encouraging thing to come to worship God. To be together with brothers and sisters. We have no isolated members that are just isolated all by themselves. We come together and we worship together. And we enjoy the wonderful praise and worship that we do together. It's encouraging to have each other praying for each other. Singing praises in such wonderful ways we've done today. It builds us up. And he closes with four great words. Verse 23. Peace. Peace be to the brothers. Second great word. And love. Third great word. With faith. 
from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the fourth one. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Peace, love, faith, grace. That's the way to end a book. He ends them that way, doesn't he? Very positive type of way. In other words, when we have peace and grace, the natural response is going to be love and faith. Focusing on the Word of God. Being faithful to Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ. I know it's hard for the world to see, and they don't understand. Even though as a prisoner, he's far richer than the most powerful emperor of Rome because of his faith and his dedication to Jesus Christ and his membership in the church that belongs to Christ. When you become a child of God, you are in the army of the Lord. And you repent of your sins and you confess your faith. You've been baptized into Christ as the Bible teaches. You come up out of that water to live a new kind of life, the Christian life as it is taught in the pages of the Bible. You're in the army now. You're in the army of the Lord. I was preaching in California one time, gospel meeting. I had a lot of military people there. A lot of military people in California. Fine Christian people, many of them. And we're eating casually after services one day. And men and women and all military people. And everybody's talking about military things. I didn't have any military stories to tell. And so finally one of them turned to me and said, What service, what branch of the service did you serve in? I said, well, I'm in the Lord's army. Been in the Lord's army all my life, ever since I became a child of God. They didn't argue with that. I think they understood the significance of that. I hope you do too, that when you become a child of God, you're in the army now. You're in the body of Christ. And we've got the biggest battle on our hands that we've ever seen. The battle for our souls, the most precious thing we've got. Win the battle by being obedient to Jesus Christ and obey the gospel of Christ today. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.